If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And children can be dismissed to children's worship at this time. So as we continue to, to ponder the uh, great unchangeable I Am, our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to another of His I Am sayings this morning. Like I said, one of the, perhaps one of the most uh, common and familiar in John 14, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. And before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we come before Your throne. We have already come before Your throne in worship, in confession, in songs of praise receiving your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And now we come before you, O Lord, to, to hear your word. And I pray that your word would be planted deep in us. So, Lord, even now, even in this moment, to cultivate our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it might, our hearts might be fertile soil to receive the truths of your word. Lord, speak to us just what you intend to speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John 14, verses 1 through 7. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room on the evening before he was crucified. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. You may be seated. Uh, when I was a boy, we went on a uh, family fishing trip to this uh, really remote lake in the wilderness in Ontario, Canada. And the only way to get there was to either fly in or, or to walk seven miles. And so it was this beautiful spot surrounded by, by wilderness. And one day, uh, after a morning of fishing, we were on an island in, in that, that, that lake and uh, eating our, our lunch. And as we ate our lunch, uh, the weather began to turn, and so the skies that had been beautiful and blue turned gray, and then the gray skies turned black, and the winds began to blow, and with them came heavy rain and lightning, and we were in the midst of this nasty storm. And the water that had been so calm and peaceful just moments before was now churning with violent waves. And we had to decide, as we were there on that island, if we should wait it out on the island or if we should, you know, try to make our way across that storm-tossed water to back to camp. 
And we decided, well, they decided, we were, I was too young to make, have any weight of decision, but they decided to head back to camp. And what followed was one of the most harrowing boat rides of my life. We, there were five of us crammed into a little 14-foot fishing boat with a 15-horse motor. And we made our way across these, these violent, huge waves. And the, the waves were tossing the boat up and down. And water was crashing in. And our gear was flying out. And my brother and I were huddled together in our little ponchos in the front of that boat, just hanging on for dear life. Now, you may wonder, what in the world does any of this have to do with our text this morning? And the answer is this. When Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, the word troubled is a vivid word that's in fact the same word that's used to describe a storm-tossed sea, agitated, disturbed, distressed, perplexed, storm-tossed. And maybe that's where we find ourselves this morning, with hearts that are in troubled waters, stirred up and tempest-tossed. Well, that's where we find the disciples in our text this morning as well. Jesus says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. But the fact is they were troubled. And in fact, a, a, the, a better translation, a more accurate translation would be, do not let your hearts continue to be troubled. They were troubled because of what Jesus had been saying in that upper room. He's been speaking to them in the upper room for, for quite some time now, and this is just hours before his arrest and his crucifixion. And in that upper room, he began to reveal to them some troubling things. It was in the upper room that Jesus himself was troubled in spirit, as John says. It was in the upper room that Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It was in the upper room that the betrayer was revealed to, to be Judas, and John said as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. It was in the upper room that Jesus said he would be leaving the disciples. My children, he said, I will be with you only a little longer. It was in the upper room that Jesus predicted Peter's denial. Peter, the outspoken one, the leader of the group, the loyal servant, the inner circle friend, the rock, the one who had said, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And now Jesus says to Peter, very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will disown me three times. Well, this is why the hearts of the disciples are troubled. Everything is changing. The, the close life that they've built together is, is about to be torn apart, and they, they, they don't fully understand what's going to happen. But they feel the weight of all this talk about dying and, and leaving and betrayal and how even the, the best among them will disown him and run away from him at his darkest hour. As the prophet Zechariah foretold, and maybe in the back of their minds, this is in their heads as well. As the prophet Zechariah said, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. So these are troubling things to take in, troubling things to hear. Everything is changing. The band is breaking up. Death is looming. Betrayal is beginning. And for the disciples, the, the sky has turned dark and the once calm waters of their hearts are now, are now 
churning and distressed like a storm-tossed sea. Let me ask you this morning, can you see yourself in the upper room with the disciples? Our circumstances, of course, are different, but for many of us, our need is the same. For many of us, our hearts are troubled just like the disciples. We, we know what it is to be disturbed in our spirits and burdened in our souls, and we're here this morning with our own medley of fears and anxieties and our own burdens and pains and struggles and losses. Our hearts are like storm-tossed waters, agitated and distressed. Some of us may have troubled hearts because of the state of the world in which we live, and the more we read the news or plug into social media, the more troubled our hearts become. Some of us may have troubled hearts because of the uncertainties of the future. The, the path ahead that seemed so clear to us before is now suddenly murky and unknown. Some of us may have troubled hearts because of the deep pains of loss and rejection. Someone or something dear to us has been torn away, and there's this gaping hole that's left behind. Some of us may have troubled hearts because of strained relationships among family members or friends, and what was once vibrant and, and healthy is now painfully damaged and difficult, and every day our hearts carry the burden of that strain. Some of us may have troubled hearts because of health concerns, whether we're struggling with the difficult diagnosis or dealing with chronic pain or searching for answers and wondering if healing will ever come. Our hearts are heavy and distressed. And some of us may have troubled hearts because our own sinful nature casts the shadow of doubt on our relationship with God. And we can identify with the words of the Apostle Paul who said, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man Am I? And we wonder if God would really embrace someone who so easily and so often strays. Well, it's into the darkness and turmoil of our troubled hearts that Jesus speaks. We have to understand the context that these words of Jesus are meant to speak comfort and assurance. He says, Do not let your hearts continue to be troubled. Take comfort. Put your agitated hearts at ease. And the reason he gives that we are not to be troubled is that there's a place for us in the Father's house. Jesus says, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And for the troubled disciples, these were deeply comforting words. Because it means that while Jesus is leaving them and, and going back to his Father in heaven, it will not be a permanent parting. It has the intended goal instead of a glorious reunion that Jesus is going there to prepare a place for them and for us. Now, the language of the Father's house is a reference to the dwelling place of God, which the Bible also calls heaven. We see this, I think, pretty clearly in Psalm 33, where the psalmist says, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. Now, that's uh, clear if you understand a little something about Hebrew poetry, um, the way parallelism works. So this is an example in Hebrew poetry of synonymous 
parallelism, which simply means that the first line is synonymous with the second line. The second line is meant to say the same thing as the first line, just using slightly different language. So, from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. That's the first line. The second line says the same thing in a slightly different way. From his dwelling place, which is heaven, he watches all who live on earth. And for the troubled disciples, these were comforting words. Because it means that Jesus is not going to leave them forever. The point Jesus is making is that we will get to be with God in his dwelling place. That there's room in heaven for all of God's chosen people. But the focus of the image is really not on heaven as a place, but rather on the presence of God as an experienced reality. This is our comfort and hope, that we will get to be with God and enjoy him forever. That is the thing that is so deeply comforting. It is God himself and his presence. That's the main thrust of Jesus' words. This is what we were made for. This is what the human heart has longed for ever since we were banished from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And this is what we will experience in fullness on the new earth. As John recorded in his, re in his vision and revelation when he heard a loud voice saying, Behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And so the problem in Genesis, which is our homelessness, our separation from God, our inability to be fully in the presence of God, finds its resolution in Revelation where there is the fullness of dwelling together, being fully in the presence of God again. And so the message of deep comfort for the disciples and for us is that there is a place for us in the Father's house, in His presence. There's room for us in the presence of God, and the plan is for us to be with Him forever. And the language of many rooms in the Father's house uh, doesn't necessarily mean there will be a literal house with actual rooms. And in fact, this uh, line of Jesus has, I think, been, um, been misinterpreted or misunderstood. It kind of stems back from a, a translation from the Latin Vulgate, where they translated the word here, uh, mansion, and the, the King James Version lashed onto that. And so they translate this, in, in the Father's house are many mansions, which is really not an accurate translation it is rooms or dwelling places or abodes. And so that kind of created a picture that there are, you know, we all have our own mansions in heaven. That's really not what Jesus is saying. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a literal house with actual rooms. The language conveys the idea that there is a permanent place for us in God's presence because we belong to Him, because we're members of His family in Christ. And though Jesus himself is now with his Father in the glory of heaven, he will come back for us. That's what he says in uh, verse 3 when he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And he's talking here about his second coming, his promised return. And of course, the Apostle Paul describes what that return of Christ will will look like in more detail in his letter to the Thessalonians where he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now the imagery here is that of a, a bridal procession with uh, Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And the way it worked in Jesus' day was that the, 
the bride and the groom would, would meet about halfway between the groom's house and the bride's house. And then they would proceed together to the home of the bride. So you get that picture in your head, which is very significant to properly understand what Paul is saying in First Thessalonians, okay? So the, the groom is over here, the bride is over here, they meet in the middle, and they proceed where? Not back to the groom's house, but to the bride's house. Christ is the groom coming from heaven, meets the church halfway in the middle, and they proceed where? Not back to heaven, but to the earth, the new earth, renewed earth, perfected earth, which John makes clear, I think, in the book of Revelation. When the church is gathered with Christ in the air at the time of his return, they will proceed with Christ not back up to heaven, but back to earth where they will dwell with him forever. This is the deep message of, of, of comfort for the disciples in the upper room, that though the death of Jesus will be bitter, it will not be the final goodbye. Jesus is going to his Father to prepare a place for his disciples so they can permanently dwell with God and enjoy him forever. And that's the good news of comfort for us as well. But these words of Jesus leave Thomas with a question. He's a bit perplexed and confused. He's not exactly sure what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus reveals himself more fully as the way to the Father. And maybe Thomas speaks for the rest of the disciples when he says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in this singular saying, Jesus brings together three dominant themes that are woven throughout the rest of John's gospel, the way and the truth and the life. So first, Jesus says, I am the way. And this is really the main focus of the saying. The main message that he wants to convey is that he is the way to the Father. That's the, the main thrust of this I am saying. And in fact, some translations try to bring that out by saying, I am the living and true way, which brings the, puts the emphasis on the way. I don't think that's a technically accurate translation, but it may convey the sense of it. But I am the way is the main thrust, the main focus of what Jesus is intending to convey. It is in him alone that we have access to the glorious presence of God. And this would become clear at his crucifixion when the temple curtain was torn in two, and now he, he is showing that he and through his death is the way into God's presence. And as we have seen before, what stands out in this saying of Jesus is the exclusivity of his claim that he is the only way to the Father, the only path to the presence of God, the only source of divine blessing. He's the only means of salvation, the only mediator between a holy God and sinful humanity, the only solution to the problem of sin, the only road to forgiveness, the only sacrifice of atonement, and the only way to everlasting life. Which means that these words of Jesus put us on a collision course with a culture that sees many roads to heaven. And, and every world religion is equally true and valid, just expressing the same truth in slightly different ways. And Jesus says, no, there's only one road, and I am it. That he alone is the way to the Father and his kingdom and all the blessings of his presence. All other roads, every other road, all the other roads lead to emptiness and pain and loss. And so if you don't yet know what path you are on, or if you are wavering back and forth at the crossroads, walk the way of Christ. 
before it's too late. As Jesus said in, his, in uh, Matthew's gospel, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. All the other roads are part of that broad road that leads to destruction. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There's only one way. There's only one road. Jesus goes on to say, I am the truth. Just hours after speaking these words, when he was on trial before Pilate the next day, he would echo the sentiment. When Pilate asked if he was a king, Jesus said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In a world that says truth is relative, that truth is whatever you make of it, that, that truth is whatever works for you. Truth is what seems right to you, and it may be different for you than it is for me. My, I have my truth, you have your truth, a world that says there are no absolutes, that there is no black and white, there is no objective truth. These words of Jesus cut through all of that fog and all of that nonsense with, with uh, stunning and resounding correction and clarity. I am the truth, Jesus said. He is the very embodiment of truth, the only standard of absolute truth, the only reliable revealer of divine truth. There is right and wrong. There is a standard by which to measure what is true and what is a lie. And so, for example, if the claims of Jesus don't mesh with the claims of other religions, then we don't try to bend and twist what Jesus said to somehow make them reconciled. And we don't try to dismiss what Jesus said as the product of his ignorance in his own human nature as so many of the higher critics do. No, we throw ourselves fully at the feet of Jesus and embrace fully what he said. And no matter how unpopular it may be, we must say that the other religious claims are wrong and false because Jesus himself is the truth. And if something that Jesus says conflicts with what other religions say, then we choose the truth. Because to fail to do so would be to deny Christ. And so if you are struggling to discern what is true and what is not in a world laced with confusion and deception, the best thing that you can do, the best thing that you can do is to go to Jesus and his teaching. And no, it doesn't mean that you will find a definitive answer to every issue in the world, but you can be assured that if something doesn't line up with, with Christ and what he says is not true, because he is the truth. R.C. Sproul said, We live in an age when truth has been despised and lies slain in the street. We live in an age when truth has been despised and lies slain in the street. And we can either go through life stumbling and swaying in the shifting sands of relative truth, never really sure about anything, never really knowing what to believe and maybe kind of going with whatever the latest person, the latest thing, the latest message is and latching onto that. Well, that might be true. That must be true. And this latest thing is true. As Paul says, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Isn't that where so many are today? 
This must be true. Because this source has said it. This is the latest truth. A couple months later, there'll be a different truth. Blown here and there by every wind of teaching. So we can either go through life that way, stumbling and swaying in the shifting sands of relative truth, or we can come to the solid ground of Christ as the truth. As Jesus said in John 8, and what a freeing thing it is to come and to find that absolute, actual truth. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from all the chaos and all the, the uncertainty and all the, the wishy-washiness of the, the shifting sands of relative truth. Freedom. To just live in and dwell in the truth of Christ. Finally, Jesus says, I am the life. And we have seen this already in some of Jesus' I am statements. In fact, the argument could be made that it's woven throughout all of his I am statements. This is the central purpose of John's gospel, that we might know that Christ is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. And so we'll see this theme again in more of the I am statements to come that Jesus is the only source of everlasting life and abundant life in the presence of God. As John said earlier in his gospel, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So he is the only escape from our deadness in sin. He's the only real answer to the problem of death. He's the only means of attaining the fullness of life for which we were made. He's the only hope that can cut through the deep pains of things like terminal cancer and stillborn babies and tragic accidents and graveside goodbyes because in him alone is their life beyond the grave. So if you find yourself like the disciples this morning in storm-tossed waters with troubled hearts, agitated, and distressed, and dealing with deep questions and losses and perplexities and confusions and pains and burdens and uncertainties, may you find comfort in these words of Jesus. Warren Wearsby once said, what, what we delight in is what we will sacrifice to enjoy. What we delight in is what we will sacrifice to enjoy. So, for example, if you, delight in, if you truly delight in your wife, then you will gladly sacrifice a night out with the guys to spend time with her. What we delight in is what we will sacrifice to enjoy. My prayer is that God would give us such a delight in his presence that we would sacrifice anything to attain it. And then... And only then will we know the deep comfort of Jesus' words that there is a place for us in the Father's house. That Jesus will return so that we can dwell with him and enjoy him forever. And that as we wait for that glorious day, we can be assured that he himself is the way and the truth and the life. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent prayer, I pray, oh, Lord, that if we are here this morning with troubled hearts, 
that you would speak to us these deep words of comfort and assurance that we so desperately need to hear. That there's a place for us in your dwelling place, a room for us, a space for us, made just for us. That you will return, Lord Jesus, to take us to be with you and your Father forever. And that you and your being in person are the way and the truth and the life. Oh Lord, speak comfort to us, I pray, as we come before your thrones, your throne in silent prayer. My dear ones, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and it has a room prepared just for you room prepared by Christ who died for your sins and went to the glory of his Father in heaven to prepare a place so that you and I and all who have true faith in Christ might dwell with him and with the Father forever. And Jesus himself is the way and the truth and the life. Oh, Lord, may we find comfort in these words. Speak to us tenderly and deeply. Draw us to you, oh, Lord. And may we find hope and comfort and assurance in the truth that we will, through Christ, be with you forever in a place of glory that is far richer and far weightier and far heavier and far more beautiful than our minds can comprehend. A glory that, as Paul says, is such that makes our present sufferings not even worth comparing to it. Oh, Lord, what a day that will be. May we wait for it with assurance and a longing and deep hope. In Jesus' name, amen.